I'd like to proclaim God's word to you this afternoon as you find it in the beginning of Paul's first letter to this church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1, the verses 1 to 4. And there it writes, or Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's respond with the singing of Psalm 149, the stanzas one and two. Love congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as mentioned already in my opening remarks, we have come here together this afternoon to worship the Lord and to celebrate the institution of a new church in the Federation of Canadian and American Reformed Churches. This new church called Pathway Christian Church will be number 62 the 62nd church in the Federation. This year has seen the rise, as you may know, of new churches in our Federation in Alberta, Ontario, and British Columbia. And that, of course, is great to see. It's great to see growth and expansion throughout the Federation. It's great to see a, another solid reform presence here in Abbotsford. It's great to see another church proclaiming the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, and as always, the credit for this does not belong to us as people, but to God, who through His Son, Jesus Christ, as we confess, gathers, defends, and preserves for Himself a church chosen to everlasting life. So we say that God is the ultimate church builder. He is the one who changes hearts, who shapes wills, who moves feet, and he does so here in Abbotsford as well. Only as we rejoice in this, we must not be surprised by this, for God has been doing this as we can see together this afternoon throughout the ages and around the world. Also in our text of this afternoon about the church in Thessalonica. I visited there a few times and they kept telling me this place is not called Thessalonica, it's called Thessaloniki. But in any case, in the New Testament, we know it as the church in Thessalonica. And this church, too, is a testimony, you can say, to God the Builder. As we read already, in a few short months, Jews and Gentiles came together in that European city. They embraced the faith. In spite of persecution, they persevered. You know, people sometimes ask, how did it grow so fast, and how did it get off the ground in such perilous times, and how did it flourish? And some, of course, will credit geography and location. Some will credit the character of the people. Some will credit the circumstances. Some will credit the leadership. But Paul knows better, for he credits God. He knows the secret of this church and of all the churches of Jesus Christ around the world. He knows what brings this community into existence 
and keeps it thriving and growing. And so this afternoon, I'd like to preach to you on the theme, a new community, or another new community, rooted in God. That's the first point we'll look at, living for God and chosen by God. Well, beloved, we don't know exactly when the Apostle Paul visited the city of Thessalonica. It was either probably in 49 or 50 A.D., and already at that time, the city had been around for 400 years. It was founded by one of the generals of Alexander the Great, named after Alexander's half-city. And once this particular city was established, we know it grew rather quickly because it has a very strategic spot there in the northern part of Greece, as well as a very natural kind of harbor. Later on in Roman times, this particular city became the capital city of the province of Macedonia. And even still today, it remains the second largest city after Athens in the nation of Greece. Well, it's to that particular city that Paul came on his second missionary journey. He came in the company of Silvanus, some translations have Silas, as well as Timothy. Together they had crossed the Aegean Sea, and first they went north to the Roman colony of Philippi, and then after, they moved south and onto the coast to Thessalonica, where there was a sizable Jewish community. And once there, you'll notice one of the first things Paul does is he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he begins almost right away to proclaim the word of the Lord. Three times, three successive Sabbath days. First, he shows the Jews from the Old Testament Scripture that their Messiah has to suffer and will rise again from the dead. And thereafter, he tells them about who Jesus really and truly is. And finally, he shows them that Jesus really is none other than the Messiah of the Old Testament. So Jesus and the Messiah are one and the same person. And what was the result of that particular kind of preaching? Well, we're told that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silvanus, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So in rather quick succession, a church of Jesus Christ gets established in Thessalonica. But yet, as you can tell from Acts chapter 17, a part of which we read, this is now the end of the story. For after that initial breakthrough of the gospel, opposition arises. Some of the Jews were jealous of Paul's success. They formed a mob, started a riot in the city, and that night Paul and Silas left and went to Berea. And the upshot of all of this is that the Apostle Paul never really spent a lot of time in the city of Thessalonica. Being forced to flee from there and later on from Berea as well, he had his concerns about this newly instituted church. Would it really survive? Would it continue to be faithful in spite of all the opposition and persecution? Would it grow? And sometime later, he decided to send them a couple of letters that we still have. And it's a letter that we can learn lots from, as from all of Paul's letter. It's a letter that also begins in a way you can see that's kind of typical for the world at that time. First, the writer identifies himself. Second, you state the intended audience or address of your letter. 
And thereafter, you add a word of greeting, and then you express an appropriate wish or something else that's positive and fitting. And that's also the established pattern and the pattern that Paul uses here. And yet, as we look very closely at what Paul writes in these opening words, there are some peculiar things that we should take note of. In the first place, notice Paul does not write on behalf of himself alone. No, he writes on behalf of a team composed of Silas or Silvanus, Timothy, and himself. Together they had come to Thessalonica. Together they had worked for the cause of the gospel. Together they are concerned about the outcome of their missionary work. In other words, if you think of it, this is very much a kind of team approach. It's a kind of approach that's still needed today. Also here in Pathway, you need to stress teamwork. As new elders and new deacons are going to be ordained this afternoon, these men need to function not as a bunch of lone rangers who all have their separate little agendas and items that they want to push, no, but as a, a team of office bearers, as men who may have different duties and different gifts, but are all moving in the same direction, having the same agenda, the same spirit, and the same purpose and end. But of course, that's not all that we note from these opening words of Paul. The second thing is that Paul makes no mention here in this greeting of his apostleship. Now, that's unusual because usually when Paul writes, and you can see that if you look, he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Here, there's none of that. He simply says, Paul. And most likely what that means is that in Thessalonica, the apostleship of the apostle Paul was not in doubt. In many places, as you may know, people challenged his credentials. Is he really an apostle of Jesus Christ or not? Was he not a pretender and a persecutor? Is he perhaps an upstart and a usurper? Was he not a Johnny come lately on the scene making exaggerated claims for himself? Apparently, there was none of that type of questioning in Thessalonica. They readily accepted him as a bona fide apostle of Christ Jesus. And for him to say to them or write to them, Paul was enough for them. Well, beloved, so it is that Paul writes to this young, fledgling church in Thessalonica. But notice next how he does so. He, he doesn't start with questions about, hey, folks, how are you doing? He doesn't immediately begin to deal with all kinds of weaknesses and all kinds of problems that he somehow heard about. No, he addresses them as the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we read very quickly over these words, but this is a very remarkable greeting. And it's remarkable for a number of reasons. For starters, it's remarkable because of the way in which Paul links God the Father and Jesus Christ. There's little doubt from what he writes that in Paul's mind, they're equals. He calls Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. And later in verse 10, he even goes a step further and speaks about Jesus as God's Son who comes from heaven. And so 
Paul is writing to believers in Thessalonica who are linked to God the Father and God the Son. In the second place, these believers are not simply a bunch of loose individuals all having a personal, private faith connection to the Father and the Son. No, Paul says that together they constitute a church. Now, the Greek word for church is a very interesting word. It's the word ekklesia, and it's made up of a prefix and a verb. The prefix is the Greek word ek, which really means out of, and the verb is the Greek word kaleo, which means to call. So, literally, an ekklesia is a group of people who have been called out. If you ask called out of what? Well, called out of the world to serve the living God. These are people who have been separated from the world and its agenda. They've been set aside and set apart. They're in it, in the world, but no longer of the world. Yes, and that, that's something that still applies today. Also here, it should apply and pass away. If you're a member of the church of Jesus Christ, then that means you have been set apart from the world. You no longer identify with, every, with it in every respect. You no longer see it as your first love. You no longer live for it and to it. There's a disconnect between you and the world in which you live. Of course, the question may be asked, do we realize that as we should? As I look around today and as I hear how Christians are often acting, I can only conclude there are many people who call themselves Christians, but who are doing everything they possibly can to get back into the world. They're attracted to its forms of entertainment. They take over its language. They imitate its style of dress. They're enticed by its toys, its pleasures, its pastimes. The prevailing model today, also among a lot of Christians today, is integration. Well, not separation. It's adoption, not rejection. It's synthesis, not antithesis. And how is that with you, beloved? Do you see yourself as being set apart by God from the world and as belonging to Jesus Christ? Or do you identify every day with this world in which we live? Do you take over its latest fads in an uncritical fashion? Do you watch its latest movies without any kind of discernment? Do you take over its latest ideas and philosophies almost automatically? Just how different how distinctive is your life, your lifestyle? But the point that the Apostle Paul is making here in our text is that it should be different. It has to be different. And why? Well, notice he also says because this church is not only out of the world, but it is also in the Father and in the Son. Now, what does that mean? 
The answer to that we first need to see is there are several things that it does not mean. It does not mean that the church is somehow physically or mystically in Christ or in God the Father. But rather, in means that the church has its life, its being, if you will, in the Father and in the Son. It is rooted in them. It draws its existence and its power from them. Think in that regard of a popular New Testament metaphor. At a certain point in his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the vine and the branches. And he compares God the Father to the gardener. He compares himself or Jesus to the vine and believers to the branches. And as the branches need to be connected to the vine in order to live physically, so believers need to be connected to Jesus Christ in faith in order to live spiritually. You see, there has to be this vital, organic union to face. There has to be this common, shared life in the Father, in the Son. That's how we are to live. Yes, and there you begin to see the secret of the Thessalonian church. How did it get off the ground so fast? How did it thrive in the midst of opposition and persecution? Primarily it was because this church was rooted in God the Father, God the Son, as well as in God the Holy Spirit. That's where it received its strength and its vitality from. And you know that's still the case today. For you here in Abbotsford, to be a strong church doesn't mean you need a lot of members or a lot of money. It doesn't mean that you need a lot of things. No, what it means is you need lots of close communion and humble dependence on God. You need daily to draw your life from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you will grow. And something else as well, you will experience what Paul speaks about in his greeting. He says, grace and peace to you. You know, there you have an Old Testament wish tied to a New Testament wish. Peace that comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which has both a negative and a positive context. It, it means an absence of conflict and a fullness of harmony and health and well-being. And grace that comes from the Greek word which means undeserved, unmerited favor. It means that God through Jesus Christ will bless you even though you are fundamentally unworthy and undeserving. And together that it means that, that you will have in grace and peace all that you need as a church. If you have grace and peace in abundance, then you will have what you need to live and to function 
as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does the triune God give to those who are rooted in Him? What does He give to Pathway Christian Church to you? He gives grace and He gives peace. He blesses our lives and fills our lives with blessing. And this is Paul's desire for the church in Thessalonica. And this is his desire for the churches of Jesus Christ all around the world. Seek your life in God, and you will receive your blessing from God. And so, beloved, we see this letter has a sender, an address, and a greeting. It also, by the way, has a thanksgiving. In it, Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians. And he even says this thanksgiving is part of his daily routine. Every day he does so. We always thank God for all of you. And he also says that they're included in his prayers, mentioning you in our prayers. He never forgets them. We continually, he says, remember you. But for what does he remember them to God? Well, notice he stresses three things, and now I give it to you in the NIV, which I think is a bit better. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Quite simply, Paul thanks God because of these three virtues that characterize their lives, and they are faith love, and hope. Now I ask you, can you think of a better way to describe what a believer's life should look like? John Calvin said of these three virtues that they give us a brief definition of true Christianity. Others have remarked that really What it all boils down to is that Christianity fundamentally is about faith and love and about hope. Now, why is that? Well, think about it for a moment. You know, faith, that's what we direct to God, right? And love is what we direct to our neighbor. And hope is what we direct to the future. As Christians, our lives are to be lived upward, looking upward, outward, and forward. And indeed, notice that all of these directions are, are in a sense, outward. And I think that's really a switch with what we're often being told today. Repeatedly, the so-called experts today are saying that if As people, we want to be whole and happy. We need to look inward, inside ourselves. And we need to tap into our hidden, unused resources, and and we need to discover our true self. And sometimes we need to connect, they say, with our inner child. And we need to build on our inner strengths. Everyone is pushing introspection, or what I would call navel-gazing, as the great solution to the human modern predicament. From the New Agers to the Eastern mystics to the modern 
rationalists, the answer to life's problems is said to lie within us. It's up to us. But beloved, Scripture says that's wrong. Utterly, devastatingly wrong. The answer lies not in us, Paul says, but in believing in God, in loving our neighbor, hoping in Christ. It's beyond us and ourselves. But then realize as well, beloved, it is in the active pursuit of faith, hope, and love. It doesn't lie in these three as simply abstract qualities that we think about once in a while and talk about once in a while. No, true faith, true faith always leads to many works for God. Faith without works, I remind you, is dead. And also true love for others is not just a warm and fuzzy feeling in your hearts. No, it translates into concrete deeds of compassion, practical works of mercy, real actions of helpfulness. And finally, true hope is not just a matter of some kind of pie-in-the-sky daydreaming. No, it means looking forward to the future expectantly and confidently. Because you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus Christ is coming back. Such a looking leads to patience and to perseverance. He gives us the strength to endure all things. Beloved, if you sometimes find it difficult to sort through all the varying demands and expectations of the Christian life, then remember just these three, faith, love, and hope. Put them into practice in a practical way here in Pathway, and you will be truly living for God. And so, beloved, Paul is saying that the church is to live in such a way that it's rooted in God, living for God, that's not all. There's a, a third thing to remember as well, namely, it's been chosen by God. Paul says in verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I hope you caught that. He's chosen you. In other words, Paul is saying this originally of those believers long ago in Thessalonica. They're not accidents. They've been chosen by God. Of course, I know that's not how the world today would put it. The world today insists, even in our broader religious community, we have chosen for God. It's our choice. It's our decision. It's, it's our in initiative. But Paul says if you look a little deeper, that order is wrong. Before we can ever choose consciously for God... God has to choose us. Quite simply, the Apostle Paul is saying there is such a thing as God's election, God's choosing of his children. 
And of course, I realize that in certain circles, it's not popular to speak about these things. Some don't know how to handle the doctrine of election, so they pretend it doesn't exist. Others try to argue it away. But at, pro at bottom, the problem isn't ignorance or insecurity. It's always pride. Man is not prepared to admit that God is absolutely sovereign in this matter of salvation. He's always looking for some shred of self-worth or innate goodness to appeal to. But yet it's futile. Paul reminds us that at bottom it's this, God has chosen you. That's ultimately why you're saved. That's ultimately why you are His children. That's why you can major in faith, love, and hope. God makes you and your salvation possible. That's what Paul is saying. God alone. But of course that raises the question, why? Why does God do so? And again, Paul gives us the answer when he says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. The reason for our election, as far as we know and understand, is to be found in the love of God. And you know, we were told this already way, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you, Moses writes to Israel, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. It was because the Lord loved you. See, what accounts for our election, God's love and God's faithfulness. Or you can wrap it together and say His steadfast love or His covenant love. The love that He lavishes upon us is not because we are so lovable, but it's because He is love. That's why the Thessalonians were chosen. That's why you are chosen. God wants to reassure you that the ground, the basis, the foundation of your salvation doesn't rest in you, not in your deeds, sorry, not in your decisions either. Indeed, how weak and vulnerable it would all be if that were the case. No, our salvation rests on God. And perhaps now you begin to see, beloved, how it is that the church in Thessalonica came into existence, how it persevered, how it grew. This isn't man's work. What you do here today and in the coming days isn't human work. It has to be God's work. It has to be rooted in His life, active in His service, chosen in his love. Every faithful church of Jesus Christ needs to abide by this.
And so, beloved, may the Lord bless you today and always. May the Lord make you a blessing. May he keep you grounded in himself and in his wonderful word of grace and peace. Amen.